we're not really evolving the way that we work, you know, the way that email works hasn't really changed in, in sort of 20 years, the way that we use offices hasn't changed. Like there's sort of so much about work that hasn't evolved. And it's no wonder that a lot of us are finding work, you know, exhausting, repetitive, wears us down. So that's it really. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learnt along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm chatting to Bruce Daisley. Bruce is the former VP Europe for Twitter, uh, the author of best-selling book, Joy of Work, and the number one business podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And today we're going to chat about the things he's learned along the way to try and make culture, work culture, to make work suck less. In fact, that's really the essence of his book, Joy of Work. It's sort of a cookbook, um, 30 things that you can do. And it's not a boss book, it's sort of an employee book. 30 things you can do to make work suck less tomorrow. And we have a great conversation. We cover things like remote working, is open plan office space broken? How to build psychological safety? And we chat a little bit about what he's doing now that he has left full-time the world of work and uh, what he plans to do with his time in the future. Great conversation with Bruce. Great to have him on. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hi, I'm Bruce Daisley. I'm the author of The Joy of Work, and I'm also the host of a podcast called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Bruce, thanks very much indeed for coming on today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, here we are, take two, because we actually recorded a first version or a another version of our conversation that we're going to have today about a year ago. Uh, but sadly, the audio didn't make the cut. So thank you very much for giving me your time twice. I do hope you're going to go back and you're going to compare the two and you're going to decide <laughs> which one was the best. <laughs> well, you know what? I had I was down in Australia, so I was up in the middle of the night talking to you and it, I was devastated when uh, I thought we had a great conversation about loads of things. So I remember what some of them were. Um, so I'll bring them back up. Yeah, honestly, it's, it's happened to me. I've um, I've lost two recordings along the way and you feel so devastated, especially if you've had a good guest that your audio doesn't work. So it's one of these obsessions, isn't it? High quality audio. We were uh, we were just looking at some of the first ones that we did, episodes sort of one to six before I'd invested in any equipment. And they seemed okay at the time, but looking back, they seemed awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The audio quality has to get better. So you're, um, you were formerly VP Amir Twitter. That's right, until about uh, three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And so what are you doing, what are you doing now? A bit of all, all the things, really. My book's done quite well. So um, the, my book's sort of on workplace culture, how to fix your workplace culture. And the, the book's done 
relatively well. So I'm doing a bit of promotion for that. It comes out in the US next week. So I'm going there to promote that. And then in addition, and that probably takes up, that probably takes up sort of a, a decent part of my time. And then in addition, I'm I'm sort of trying to see what I can do to work full time or dedicate my energies towards environmental things, really. So that might be working on climate change of all descriptions. So one of the things I'm actually working on is a, a thing to get rid of plastic. So it's sort of, there's all manner of different things all ongoing, all, you know, I've been just having rough discussions on them. My view is if I can, if the book and my podcast can make me enough money to keep going, then my aim really is to uh, to try and do them full time. So just didn't have enough time to go to work. I didn't have enough time to what? go to work. Go to work. Yeah. All these other things that work just got in the way of all of these other things. I, I'd been at Twitter for eight years and it was such a joyful, happy job that my focus very much was thinking, you know, I didn't want to do the job with less enthusiasm than I've been doing it. And it's, uh, it's such an incredible group of people. So I thought eight years was probably long enough. Very good. And so you said the book, I mean, because you're, how long did you do the podcast before you wrote the book? 18 months? Uh, yeah, about, about two years, really. So I started the podcast sort of 2017, I think, and the book came out 2019, so two years. What was the genesis of what made you want to do the podcast? The podcast really was, I've always been fascinated with workplace culture. I've always been interested in why some workplaces are more enjoyable than others. And that was partly sort of observing friends, partners, their jobs, their jobs either seemed better than mine or worse than mine at various times in my career. So I was always interested in those things. And I became fascinated with what the mechanics of that was. What was the way to make certain workplaces more enjoyable? And, you know, was there, I was searching for books myself on how to make my own workplace more enjoyable. And I wanted something that was a bit more directional, a bit more prescriptive. You know, sometimes I, I sort of describe it as saying I wanted a cookbook. So I wanted, you know, if you wanted a team dynamic to be more engaged or hardworking or more accountable, what were the, the specific things you needed to do? Because I, I spend a lot of time these days going to going to conferences and you often hear people saying, oh, yeah, you know, what you need to do is you need to get purpose in your workforce. It's like, what does that even mean? If I go back to work on a Tuesday, how do I bring purpose to my team? And it just, for me, it felt nebulous and unachievable. So, so I became, I became fascinated with what were the specific actions that any of us should take to make our work feel more engaged. And I just didn't want these vagaries. And so that was it, really. I sort of, the podcast started like that. And then the book came from it. The, the podcast became like number one business podcast. And Penguin said to me, would you turn it into a book? And I thought, well, you know, I'm never going to get that offer again. So I might as well do that. <laughs> and what's the, the genesis of your book is? It's that recipe, it's that cookbook, the recipe book? Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, it's sort of 30 interventions to improve your workplace culture. It's 30, 30 ways to try to make work more more enjoyable, those things really. Sort of what can we do to to feel less burnt out? You know, over half of British workers say that they feel burnt out in their jobs. So what can we do to to sort of escape that sense of burnout, to escape that sense of feeling exhausted all the time but also what could what are the secrets for us to try and improve the way that we engage with each other 
how to make our teams work better. So those things really. But it's also an interesting dynamic that you've written it from an employee can buy the book, could be inspired, take it to work, share it with colleagues, do some stuff. It doesn't have to be, it's not a management down. You know, the, the thing about purpose in organizations, the people sitting in an audience there are CEOs and somebody saying to them, if you want your business to be grow faster, be more profitable, you need purpose. And you're saying that might or might not be true, but shit. Don't you just wish Friday, by the time you get to Friday, you'd had a better week? So this was it for me. You know, it's definitely not a book for bosses. It's a book for anyone. And in fact, you know, the Amazon, it's got sort of 60 or 70 five-star reviews on Amazon. And most of the reviews say, you know, we've used this to work out what was going wrong in our team and the actions we've taken. You know, I bought this and then we've ended up buying it for everyone in the company some really charming comments, really. There's some really sort of good applications because it was very much, I saw it as like a troublemaker's manifesto. <laughs> you know, it was like it was for someone to maybe go to work thinking, what can I do to use evidence to improve to improve the, the way that work their team is going, really? Well, there's, I've uh, recommended it to clients and, in fact, have used it, particularly particularly where clients have got, have got a culture committee, you know, sort of a group of employees that are trying to get their heads around the culture. And, and I say, look, why don't you get joy of work, read that. And we'll, you know, get back together and talk about what you want to implement. And the bit that is always causes consternation is that your phrase of there's always an inner mill, the inner mill owner in all of us, you know, like where's Fred, why isn't Fred at his desk? And of course, what happens often is then we're looking at the CEO of the business and they start to refer to the CEO as the mill owner from then on. And it's just, yeah. And then the CEOs gets really quite narky that they're all referring him to as the mill owner. So uh, it definitely, it definitely works from that perspective. But then that's great because it sh- shines a spotlight on their behavior that they need to fix. Exactly. In a charming way, not, um, not in a sort of devious way. I think more than anything else, my feeling is that anyone can improve their workplace culture. Generally, bosses don't set about trying to, you know, to tyrannize their workplaces. They, they're they not setting out to make people's lives unhappy. And, you know, management is often sort of a lay skill. And so the more that there can be discussions about things, and especially discussions based on evidence and, and data, really. So quite often, my feeling was there was a book a few years ago called Rework by a guy called Jason Freed. The guys at Basecamp. That's right. That's right. And it was sort of a series of about 70 sort of brief opinionated essays. Oh, you need to do this. You need to do this. It was frustrating for me because there was no evidence in it. And so if I turned up to my boss saying, we need to do this, and all I've got to justify why is the, like this angry essay that the owner of a, a business has written. I just felt like you weren't going to win the debate. Whereas my feeling was, if you turn up, though, to your boss saying, here's the science of open plan offices, that's why we should allow people to wear headphones. Or here's the science of how meetings work. We should allow people to try and reduce the amount of time they spend in meetings. And if you show that, then you can at least have a discussion. So that was the aim, really, to try and sort of give people interventions that they could bring to their workplaces that, you know, hopefully would would create an informed debate. You might not agree with everything that Jason says in Rework and his other books, but, you know, certainly they've got a bit bigger now, but I remember thinking that that 
that that organization, 16 people at base camp, that's a ve- it was a very influential 16 people, you know, that had a big influence on how people worked, you know, fully remote, no offices. What do you think on that fully remote workforce? Would it work for every business though? The interesting thing for them is that they've created this culture that they talk about. They they work four days a week during the summer. You know, this this sort of there's a lot interesting in their approach. I think one of the challenges of their approach is that they they don't set out to be highly successful, highly profitable business. And so it's the the imperative that a founder owned business can set about doing that. I'm not sure ma- many companies would accept. I find some of the stuff that they do really interesting. I just found that some of it was a bit lacking in evidence. I think that was the challenge for it. So look, let's go back to one of the other things you said, the the evidence for open plan offices. Yeah. So look, you know, the evidence for open plan offices is that emails go up by two thirds. If you shift to an open plan office, face-to-face conversations go down by about 75%. There's clearly a big impact. It sort of transforms the experience of work when we go to open plan. thing is, for most of us, open plan now is the reality. We're all in open plan these days. So you're not going to go back to, I mean, I did see um, someone the other day talking about their workplace saying that they thought that they hated their job. And in fact, they've gone to a new office layout, which is offices rather than open plan. And they, they're absolutely loving it. So I suspect most of us aren't going to make that transition. Most of us aren't going to go back to something else. So then it's about not about sort of harping after something that we're never going to get back to. But okay, well, what evidence can we use? What what can we do to try and improve the experience of the open plan office that most of us find ourselves in, really? What conclusions have you come to? Did you change anything at Twitter in terms of the the layout and the working practice? I'm a big fan of trying to reduce the amount of meetings that you know anyone has, and and we were resolutely focused on that in the sort of the last time I was there. We were trying to abolish meetings. I talk a lot about silent meetings, and I've done I've done quite a lot on my podcast about that, and I've done quite a lot on the podcast and in my book talking about silent meetings and the way you can do it. So I think they're, they're particularly of interest. Silent meetings. Tell me more about a silent meeting. The aim of silent meetings is that the origin of them, it was at Amazon. And in fact, as people have left Amazon and gone to work at other places, they've tried to introduce them in other places too. So the way that silent meetings generally work is that PowerPoint is banned at Amazon. And it's just because generally what you find is the quality of conversation that people have when they, they're presenting is worse. You know, people turn up, they don't listen to the PowerPoint, they get their phones out. This sort of, these a sort of lot of focus on the performative parts of it. Or even if you send, you, you send the pre-read around before, no one has time to read the pre-read. So you find yourself sort of doing various things and there's been good examples of it where effectively where you know decisions have been made and no one can remember a decision being made and and things things like that have happened and so the idea of of silent meetings is that amazon say a meeting should only exist when there's a decision to be made and the decision should be made they normally have like, like a four or five page memo that's circulated to everyone and the memo says the ins and outs of it. It's a reasoned, rational argument, giving all the data. Everyone sits in silence and reads it. And then 
they effectively they make a decision based on that. The way that we did it at Twitter was that we use we had the luxury that everyone had laptops. Uh, we used to use Google Docs, so the the document to read was circulated on a Google Doc. And then the way that Google Docs work is it's sort of like a collaborative version of of Word. The way that Google Docs works is that you can add comments and people see them as you go. So generally, one of my former colleagues wrote a a brilliant blog post on this that anyone can find. It's called the the Silent Meeting Manifesto. But you can sort of search that and you can effectively you can see the methodology that we use. But we found it was a lot faster. The decisions were a lot better. People were genuinely informed in the things that were going on. So it just it, it transformed the, um, the decision making process, really. It's fantastic. And you're, you're right. The whole people turning up and not having done any of the pre-work is a killer. Because then half the people, half the people are ready to dive into the discussion, and the other half aren't. The truth about that, the reality of that, is that the idea of a pre-read presumes that people have got loads of extra time. And here's the curse of modern work: the curse of modern work is filled with guilt. Is that we've all we all go home and our inbox is far fuller than we intended. We all find ourselves sneaking a glance at our phone when we're in meetings. We go home and we're answering emails on the phone. Uh, on the sofa, then someone sends us a pre-read. If you do justice to a pre-read, it's going to be sort of, you know, 40 minutes, 50 minutes work. And it's just the indulgence to presume that everyone's got 50 minutes to sit and read your document. It's just a fantasy. And I think the idea of silent meetings is we're not going to demand that you give even more time to this because the time, the only time that will be given will come from your spare time. We're not going to do that. The time is going to effectively going to take place in the meeting and that's the intention really and only the meeting when we've got we've got a decision to be made about something yeah that's it i mean just you know, i think the critical thing for me is that quite often we're not really evolving the way that we work you know the way that email works hasn't really changed in in sort of 20 years the way that we use offices hasn't changed like there's sort of so much about work that hasn't evolved and it's no wonder that a lot of us are finding work, you know, exhausting, repetitive, wears us down. So that's it, really. And what about you've got laptops in your meetings, I guess not for doing email on during the meeting, and people have got phones in meetings. I, I find that rather than say, this meeting is now boring, please can we move on? Somebody just disengages and takes out their phone. I think, you know, number one, that's often the imperative of bosses. The challenge is this, is that the average British person spends 16 hours a week in meetings, and yet, you know, they're getting 200 emails a day. Unless companies make a decision about what they want people to do and not do, then inevitably people are going to try and sort of get everything done. And I think that's the challenge that most companies they give you something new to do they ask you to do appraisals for everyone they they give you more and more work to do and they're not telling you what to not do and so look, number one for me is that you should companies should set about trying to half the amount of time that we spend in meetings do that and then you know when people are down to like an hour a day in meetings or less then i think it's perfectly fair to say don't get your phone out in this meeting when most people are spending two or three hours a day in meetings i think it's inevitable that people are going to get their phones out i was with a client and it a leadership team and it took almost two days to decide that doing email in meetings was not acceptable yeah because there were two or three people who said if i don't do email in a meeting when will i get it done 
Yeah, absolutely. But they were in meetings like four days a week, solid, right? So you could absolutely see their predicament. The problem they had is that they didn't feel able to not go to the meetings that they were invited to. So there was a cultural thing about how as a business do we, we, do we allow people not to go to meetings that they don't think they're going to add any value in? I mean, the difficulties, like Jeff Bezos says something and Elon Musk has said something. You know, if I think a meeting's not adding value, I get up and leave. And of course they do. They're sort of, they're billionaires <laughs> and, the, the, you know, it's the imperative of, of a, a sort of incredibly fortunate person. I struggle to see how anyone would applaud the the new trainee if he got <laughs> up and left. And that's the challenge of it, isn't it? But if if your business was running in a way that you would want it to, then you would you would want the trainee to get up and leave, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean we all we all say things like that, absolutely. But you know, I certainly know that if you had a trainee who's expected to sort of go through the uh, era of doing grunt work, and you know, if they got up and they said they were leaving, I don't know. I I just think people would say, well, that's not how it's meant to work. I often quote your thing about Jeff Bezos knowing nothing about pizzas, which that because uh, <laughs> he says he says any team that could be fed with two pizzas is uh, is too big, and as you you keep saying, well, two pizzas is two people. So oh, absolutely. Where's the where's this idea that <laughs> <laughs> you don't get a pizza to share? That's just not how it is. And I also like your uh, your observation about Ray Dalio that it can't be true because he's only got one example. And I've chatted to a couple of people who've worked with him. Just, you know, so Ray Dalio, for anyone who maybe isn't up to date, Ray Dalio is sort of, you know, regarded as one of the, the most successful uh, investment fund bosses for the last 20, 30 years, very much systematized the, the way that he worked. And he sort of published all his values. He published sort of the, the approach they, they were taking and he turned it into a very successful book. But, you know, some of the values are that in every meeting, people give everyone a score. If you imagine sort of Uber, but for meetings. So like you give a rating to everyone in the meeting. And he says, it's a sign that their culture's in a good place because one time he got a D minus. But the thing is about that story is that, he talks about the same story over and over again. Now, I've I've got a feeling that if he was if he was working the meeting, he would give different examples. He'd say he'd say that sometimes he gets a C, sometimes he gets an E. But the fact he he mentions all the time that once he got a D minus, I find a little bit unconvincing because they reach the rest of the time people people just feel obliged to give him an A or a B. It's sort of the undercurrent, isn't it? As you say about billionaire bosses exactly that exactly that and it's sort of an easy thing isn't it for everyone to leave the meeting give the boss an a you know it sort of it, it gives you um it gives you a sort of you know an easy way to suck up to the boss and i'm not convinced that him getting a, a d minus once shows that their culture is in a good place and what about remote working so i was you know you've got marissa wire when she took over at yahoo you know sort of banned banned working from home and the bit that often gets missed out is when she got questioned about that she said look I've checked the VPN logs and when my staff say they're working from home I can absolutely tell you they're just not working yeah and it's just an interesting one I mean you know she effectively said that people weren't working and so they got rid of it I mean <laughs> you know for me there's been some interesting evidence and data on working from home i think you know the option to allow people to work from home is obviously you know very liberating and and very 
freeing for a lot of people. You know, they might have caring responsibilities or they might have things that they need, uh, they're required to do. And so the option to work from home, obviously sort of, and it's better for the planet, you know, not having to commute for an hour each way. But I think, you know, critically, we need to know what the impact that that working from home has on us. And one of the, one of the interesting things that happens is that people who work from home generally talk less to their colleagues. People who work from home generally sort of have fewer interactions. And if you work on the basis that every time we have an interaction with colleagues, the quality of our work goes up and, you know, there's an assumption built in there. But if we're sort of interacting with colleagues, then we're sort of discussing things. And generally, each of those helps sort of sandpaper rough edges off the things that we're doing. And people who work from home generally chat less and interact less with their colleagues. So there does seem to be something lost by that. I'd seen some research that suggested that the optimal, if you were going to do it at all, was sort of two days a week at home, three days a week in the office. Because it's really difficult to build that culture, isn't it? That sort of, you know, whilst you're making the tea or around the water cooler, you know, nobody gets on a conference call and just talks shite for 50 minutes, you know, whereas at work, you do that all the time, or maybe even go at the pub after work with people. And at home, it's just all of those interactions are missing. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's exactly it. So look, you know, it's not to say that you don't do working from home, but what you find is that organisations who introduce working from home, and look, we mentioned Basecamp before, they actually don't force you to go into the office. Uh, there's other organisations that don't even have an office. But what you find is that you need to be really intentional about the times you get people together in, in person, because getting people together in person you need to say, okay, well, let's not get them together to watch PowerPoint. Let's get them together to to actually engage and interact with each other. Well, it's I guess in in the same way that Basecamp get their teams together every year for a week, not to do business, but just to get to know each other. When I was at Pier One, we used to get the executive team together once a quarter for a week to work on the relationship and not on the business because we were we were in seven cities, three countries, two continents, and if we didn't spend time together you know, we would, time zone difference, you know, would just make it impossible to hang out at all. Exactly that. Exactly that. So, so look, you know, so th- what you can do and look, you know, I go through all the science of this, but what you can do when you get people together face to face, you say, okay, we need to be sort of focusing on, I guess you'd call them team building exercises, but, you know, focusing on things that build and stress test the relationships between us. Yes. And, and check to see whether we've got psychological safety. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what's your what's your take on that? Because I know you've spoken about that quite a bit on the podcast and interviewed some some interesting guests. Yeah, I mean, so psychological safety is the idea that is the concept that says that effectively, when we can speak candidly to each other with no consequence, work is better. And, you know, there's no shortage of, of evidence. The, the leading person who did most of the research on it is a woman called Amy Edmondson. And what she said was she said that when we look at the organisations who seem to produce the best results, they're the ones where there's no fear of being candid in our communication. Now, the challenge of, of that is that actually it's quite often it's hard to achieve. You know, you can't just mandate that people will speak candidly to each other. And often the weakest link is is what happens. So if you've got one boss, I remember vividly sort of working for one boss and and when those pulse surveys came round, when the the sort of the the questions about how work was came round, he would say, you better fill it in, saying you love it here. And so what happens is that you sort of, you're immediately challenged. You start thinking, oh, you know, 
what's my situation here? Shall, shall I be honest? I'm anonymous. Shall I be honest or shall I shall I just try and please his boss? But it, it forces you into a situation that hundreds of us uh, find us, thousands of us find ourselves in, where you know we're we're constantly we're constantly sort of debating: should I be honest or should I just say what's easiest? Really? Well, it's when I'm speaking, I often ask the audience to look at the person next to them and ask themselves if they would tell the person sitting next to them if they had spinach in their teeth. Right. Because I think that there's, that's quite a low emotional barrier to give feedback. And my experience is about 70% of the people will say, you know, yes, I don't know you, but I would tell you if you had spinach in your teeth. And then I say, because I'm trying to get a proxy for, I think you suck at your job. I say, what, what if you had BO or you had bad breath? And people are like, I'm not even thinking about this. This Just thinking about giving this guy feedback on that subject makes me uncomfortable. And it flips the other way. About 70% of people go, we're not having that conversation. And then I say, well, what happens when he finds when this person finds out that you could have told them that and they've been going around unknowingly smelly for several hours or days? And they go, well, they probably think I'm a twat because I could have told them and I didn't. And so it's, you know, it's like that at work, you know, that happens all the time. People do things. And if you think positively about them, then you would say, look, I'm sure they didn't do this on purpose. Probably they don't know the impact it's having, but you're right. That candidness is, you know, I was talking to somebody today and he said, he said, that's why I loved working with the Dutch. And I was saying the same thing about some of my colleagues I used to work with in Bulgaria. That gene is that we have in, in Britain, it's just not there. You know, they'll just tell you exactly the feedback. And quite often people say, God, I wish I was more Dutch. Or isn't it lovely that, you know, the Polish people that we work with are just so, so direct. And there's, it's definitely a British thing that I think we avoid having difficult conversations. And so we've got to work at it harder, I think, than some of the, some other, other cultures. That's interesting. Do you think the Brits are, because I, I think the Brits are more honest, more candid than, than some nationalities, definitely than, you know, than Spain, for example, definitely than maybe than America. It's interesting, those cultural differences. I think we're prepared to use humour more than certainly the Americans, you know, sort of snarky humour. But one of the things I remember working with my colleagues in the US a lot was that there was a thing that somebody shared, which was how to work with the English. And there was a phrase that, that there was in there, which was that five minutes to go in a conference call, an Englishman would say, there's just one more thing. Yeah. And the definition of that was that this is the purpose of the whole call. The other 55 minutes has been leading up to this. And so that actually ends up being, I found seemingly quite true, that the Brits would beat around the bush for a long time. And now that time is running out, we'll, now, we'll, now we'll get to the thing that was the nub of it. What about, you mentioned earlier, the uh, headphones in the office. What's your take on headphones in the office? Why is that a good thing or not? I think, firstly, it's a reality of modern work. So most of us find ourselves, I mentioned before, most of us find ourselves in open plan offices where we struggle to get things done, where we find that we're beset with constant interruptions. We find that it's, it's very difficult to, to do blocks of concentrated work. And look, that's the reality of the economics of modern working. So we're not going to overcome that. In addition, that we've got these demands upon us, which are meetings and emails. The overall impact of all of these things is that work can feel exhausting. It can feel, you know, that we're 
were just struggling. You know, if you've ever found yourself saying, I go into work early because I can get things done, or you you find yourself sort of doing work in, in the weekends, you know, that probably to some extent you'll recognize these things. And so the critical thing about headphones is that normally people who are against headphones will find themselves sort of harking back to an era of work that to, to a large extent is just in the past. They'll say, in my day, no one wore headphones. It allows you to do chat and, and you know, and get more done. And the, the critical thing is that it's a charming idea, but it just, it doesn't reflect the reality of, of what works like for a lot of us now. And so, you know, my feeling is the best thing we can do is not, try and push against headphones but try and recognize what is probably a good time for headphones and a, and a bad time for headphones and and learn to how we should balance those things really and is that is the headphone thing a response to the fact that the open plan offices haven't been designed with enough quiet space for concentrated effort yeah, I mean, to a large extent, that's definitely true. But, you know, I was chatting to someone recently and they said, you know, that they um, their company had shared the good news. And, you know, this is an office with over a thousand people shared the good news that they could get another 200 people into the office. <laughs> and, it, you know, what was being compromised was common spaces and desks were just going to be crammed a little bit closer together. And, you know, that's definitely not good news for most people, apart from the financial director of the business. And I think that's it, you know, work for a lot of us is sort of crammed in and we don't control it and one thing that we've seen over the last few years is that everyone's been open plan but more and more organizations are shifting now to to hot desks and the consequence of that is twofold firstly people talk about you know that they are they struggle to connect with their team. They say that, you know, they've lost some sort of the rapport that existed in their organization. A lot of people report that. A lot of people over time say work just doesn't feel the same. You know, works sort of feels lonelier. And I think that's one of the consequences. Now, look, very clearly you can you can sort of say, okay, but that's just the reality. But I think more than anything, it's just really trying to the more that you know the evidence of these things, the more that you can adapt to them really. It's that sense of belonging, isn't it? I mean, you turn up and you and there's a bun fight for a hot desk sitting next to different people. You know, it's like, why am I in the office if they care so little that I can't, I don't even get a desk? It's like, I may as well go to Starbucks where at least people know my name and will give me the same coffee every day. I'm more welcome at Starbucks than I am in my own office. You know, you can just see, but as you say, the finance director thought it was great because we get another 200 people in. Exactly that. And then, and then when all their best people leave, they wonder why. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly it. For me, it's just really interesting to look into the science of this. And I think the challenge quite often is that we find ourselves in a situation where we've got a feeling about something, but we, you know, we, we've got a feeling that that work isn't right or it works not. Um, it doesn't feel as satisfying as it used to be, but we can't pinpoint it. And it's it's largely because, you know, sometimes the we just don't have the evidence to hand, really. Brilliant. Bruce, what is it that you now know that you wish you'd known at some earlier point? The big thing for me was, you know, I spent a long time sort of trying to make my teams work better and t- trying to make, you know, my experience of work better. And I was sometimes baffled why... You turn the steering wheel one way and it didn't seem to go that way. And so 
for me, it was all about trying to trying to get the evidence of that. And what I realized very quickly, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that I've sort of discovered. There's really bad evidence for the things that we do or there's really good evidence for the opposite. I, I guess what's the, the thing that I know now that I wish I'd known before was that there's a whole load of evidence about how we can fix work. We just need to look for it. Fantastic. So that actually leads me on to maybe some book recommendations. So other than the joy of work or eat, sleep, work, repeat, as it's called in America when it gets published next week. Yeah. Other than one flavor of that or another, what are some of the best books that you found on this journey? For me, I loved Lost Connections, which is a book by a guy called Johan Hari. Ostensibly, it's about depression, but it's not really about depression. It's about how how human beings relate to each other. And I thought that was brilliant. And there's a lot about work in it. It's a lot about our engagement with work. So, you know, definitely I, I loved that book. That's probably the, the, the workiest book that I've read recently that I've enjoyed. I've been reading a few forthcoming books about four-day weeks and things like that for future episodes of my podcast. But um, yeah, I think Lost Connections, if I was going to recommend you one. And what about podcasts? Do you got any podcasts you listen to as well? Yeah, I, I'm a very heavy um, podcast listener. I start the day listening to two hours of podcasts about American politics every day at 1.8 speed. I do not recommend <laughs> it. Yeah, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. What else have I been listening to? I'll try and sort of scan through my app. You know, for me, I love I love things about American politics So and tennis. I listen to the tennis, <laughs> the tennis podcast, pop music, and American politics. I mean, in combi- combination, it's sort of a uh, probably not everyone's taste. And is there anything you've got, anything on your playlist that relates to work culture? A little bit. I mean, you know, I quite like Adam Grant's work-life podcast. I sort of subscribe to various TED Talky things, and occasionally there'll be things there. Not really. Not really, to be honest. <laughs> American politics and tennis. Very good. Very good. Bruce, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Thank you very much indeed for giving me the time. Good. I'm delighted to chat. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.